can open your Bibles to Galatians chapter 4 as we continue through our study of the book of Galatians. And as we start this morning, I want to just jump right out and start with something very deeply theological, something that's very robust, something that's going to get you thinking in the deep end of the water. And so I want to draw your attention to Charlie Brown and the Peanuts. Have you ever thought about the issue of unrequited love among the different characters of the Peanuts? Think about it for a moment. It's it's actually quite fascinating when you think about the Peanuts. Peppermint Patty loves Charlie Brown, and she famously calls him Chuck, but Charlie Brown has no interest in Peppermint Patty. As a matter of fact, Charlie Brown loves the little red-haired girl. But he never gets to meet her. He only sees her from afar, and he's fascinated with her. Sally loves Linus. Linus could care less. He's more in love with his blanket and also with his teacher, Mrs. Offmar. Then you've got Lucy, who loves Schroeder, and Schroeder wants nothing more than to play Beethoven on his toy piano. So everybody's frustrated in the peanuts because nobody gets with who they want to get with. And so they throw up their hands, and there's that famous line from the Peanuts that says this, Nothing takes the taste out of peanut butter quite like unrequited love. There's something weird about unrequited love. When you love somebody deeply, and they do not reciprocate that love. Maybe you had a childhood crush on somebody and they never gave you the time of day. You think about this whole issue of reciprocal love, reciprocal affection, reciprocal respect. And so why do I bring up this issue of a reciprocal type of love? Well, as we move through chapter 4, Paul is going to shift his tone. And he's going to take a little... uh, parenthesis, if you will, and he's going to become very pastoral, very tender-hearted with this church that he's been pretty much chiding for the past three chapters. So let's read together Galatians chapter 4, starting in verse 12. Starting in verse 12. Brothers, I entreat you, become as I am, For I also have become as you are. You did me no wrong. You know it was because of a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Have I then become your enemy by telling you the truth? They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out, that you may make much of them. It's always good to be made much of for a good purpose, and not only when I am present with you. My little children, for whom I am again in the anguish of childbirth, until Christ is formed in you. I wish I could be present with you now. And change my tone, for I'm perplexed about you.
Here's the big idea of this passage of Scripture, and you may not see it at first. It's going to take a while to unpack what Paul's saying here, but here's the big idea. A church and its leaders should demonstrate a reciprocal love for one another. A church, you guys, and its leaders, myself, Pastor Andrew, the elders, we should demonstrate a reciprocal love for one another. Now, we see this from two perspectives. Paul's going to give us this from two perspectives. The first perspective we're going to see this is the Galatians' love for Paul. The Galatians' love for Paul. In other words, how the church at Galatia loved, received Paul, their pastor. And so in verse 12, Paul begins with an appeal. And notice the change in tone. Brothers, I entreat you. You know, for the first three chapters of Galatians, Paul's been pretty rough. I can't believe you're being seduced. You're being bewitched. Who, who's bewitched you? Paul has been very passionate about their deserting of the gospel, turning to a different gospel, because these Judaizers, if you remember, these false teachers have come in, and they're trying to distort the gospel. They're trying to confuse the Galatians. And so Paul shifts his tone now, and now he's this tender gentle pastor who loves this church and he appeals to them as brothers now oftentimes we think of paul you know he's not a cold dispassionate theologian with pie in the sky theology that never gets his hands dirty yes he's passionate about theology yes he's passionate about the gospel there's no denying that but he's also just as equally passionate about his church about the spiritual condition of these people he loves these people and so he's addressing them as brothers. And he begs them, brothers, I beg you, I entreat you, become as I am. Imitate me. And that sounds a little arrogant at first for Paul to say, imitate me. But Paul often says that throughout his writings. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 1, Paul says, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. Imitate me like I imitate Christ. In 1 Thessalonians, he's talking to the church, how the church had imitated him. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, and you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith has gone forth everywhere, so that we need not say anything. So what's Paul saying here? When he says to them, brothers, be like me, become as I am, as I am like you. What he's basically saying is, dear brothers and sisters, dear, dear church, remember the transformation that I underwent as formerly Saul, a persecutor of the church, to now one who's been saved by grace, live in the glory of the gospel that's transformed your life. I used to be a Pharisee that persecuted the church. I was a blasphemer. I was a violent man. I, I was one that dragged people off to, to, to jail to be killed. But yet on the road to Damascus, the Lord showed up in power. He saved me by grace. He, he liberated me. He took the chains off of me. I'm no longer bound to legalism. I'm no longer bound to Phariseeism. I am now a new creation in Christ. Remember that. Remember Paul's anthem? Go back to Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. 
This is Paul's anthem. This is Paul's life verse. This is Paul's thesis. Galatians 2.20, I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's saying, listen, imitate me and how the gospels transform my life. Live in the freedom of who you really are. He's not inflating himself selfishly. He's not trying to elevate himself as this awesome person. He's basically saying, look, you guys know my past. You had the same past. All of us have been saved by grace. Don't be so seduced by these false teachers that you forget who you are in Christ. Paul says back in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 15 and 16, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. The Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason, that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience, unlimited patience, as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. So Paul says, listen, Galatians, be like me. I'm freed from the past. I'm freed from that legalism. But you're going back into that bondage. Let's all remember who we are in Christ and how God has saved us. Now, how did the church demonstrate love for Paul. Well, we've seen a specific example of this, and it goes back to when Paul first went and met the Galatians. On his first missionary journey, when Paul goes to that area, Paul is going to refer to how they first received Paul. And it was kind of under some unusual circumstances. They did not accept Paul based on worldly criteria or outward appearance. They didn't accept Paul because he was this charismatic, gifted, powerful, handsome, tall, good-looking, eloquent man who dazzled people with his managerial techniques and his business acumen and his giftedness. Listen to what Paul says. Look at verse 13. You know it was because of a bodily ailment. I don't know what your translation says. There's a sickness, a bodily ailment, a sickness, a disease that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. We don't know what this sickness is that Paul first came to them with. He just mentions it's a bodily ailment. It was a trial to them. They didn't scorn him. They didn't, didn't despise him. We don't know exactly what it was. There's some, been some theories. So let me give you the theories of what Paul's malady, what Paul's sickness was. And again, these are just guesses that scholars have thought about over the years. One was that on his way to Galatia, he went through a swampy region of Pamphylia and contracted malaria from the mosquitoes and showed up with all the conditions of malaria. And that's how he showed up to the Galatian church with all of the effects of having to suffer from malaria. Again, we don't know. That's just a guess. Other People think that maybe Paul suffered epilepsy and he had some like grand mal seizures and, you know, foaming at the mouth and, and, and had these seizures. Um, in verse 14, where it says, you did not scorn me, literally in the Greek text, you did not spit on me. Now, why would Paul say you did not spit on me? Back in that culture, if you had a quote unquote demon and it um, manifested itself in, in seizures, the pagans would go spit on you to get the demon to come out of you. And so Paul could have been playing on that by saying, hey, you know, you didn't spit on me. 
Maybe he had epilepsy. Maybe he had malaria. We really don't know. Here's the other theory that I think is probably maybe the closest. He had some type of eye disease, some type of problem with his eyes. Now, how do we get that? There's a contextual clue in verse 15. Verse 15, what then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. So he mentioned something about you guys would have, maybe I had such a bad eye problem, you would have taken your own eyes out and given them to me to help me see better. Now go to the very end of Galatians, go to chapter 6, verse 11, and there's another clue there. Chapter 6, verse 11, we'll get to there when we get to the end of Galatians, whenever that is. Um, See with what large letters I'm writing to you with my own hand. Now, why would he be writing with large letters? Because he can't can't see. So whether it's a combination of all three or one, we really don't know exactly what Paul's issue was, but he somehow came with the manifestations of a physical ailment that made life pretty difficult for the Galatians to accept him. Maybe he was disfigured. Maybe there was some type of unpleasantness related to it. Because Paul says it was a trial. There in, in, in verse 14, though my condition was a trial to you, it was a trial to you. We don't know what it was. You didn't scorn me. You didn't despise me. But you received me as an angel. Now, history tells us Paul was probably a short, bald, old, overweight man with a crooked nose who would not garner any attention as this tall, athletic handsome, charismatic leader that would draw people in by his personality and magnetism. As a matter of fact, in 1 and 2 Corinthians, Paul is always talking about these super apostles that are always putting Paul down. They say things like this in 2 Corinthians 10.10. For they say, these super apostles, his letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily presence is weak and his speech is of no account. Yeah, Paul writes a good, you know, his letters pack a punch, but when you see him in person, he's just a fat old dude that's kind of sick all the time. He's not this great orator. He's not this magnetic personality. He doesn't, he didn't come with a a church growth gimmick to somehow wow you to accept him. How did Paul come? He came in sickness. Now, how did he come to the Corinthian church? The same way. He came to the Galatian church with some type of malady, but listen to how he came to the Corinthian church. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, 1 through 5. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men but in the power of God. Why did they accept Paul like an angel, like a very messenger of God? Why did they accept Paul? It wasn't because Paul was all that. As a matter of fact, he was weak. He had some type of sickness. The reason they accepted Paul was because of the message that he shared. He shared with them the gospel and they received that message and the power of the Holy Spirit, and that message changed their lives. Notice what he says in verse 15. What then has happened because of your, or what has become of your blessedness? I don't know what your translation says. It's, it's really the word blessedness, joy. 
Basically, what Paul's saying is, listen, when I first came to you, and even though I was weak and I was sick and it kind of was probably gross to look at me, I shared with you the gospel, and that message changed your life. Where's that joy? Where's that excitement that you had when you first heard the gospel, when you first trusted Christ for salvation? What has happened to your blessedness? What's happened to that initial joy? Because the gospel has power. When I first came to you, the gospel had the power to change you. What's happened? Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. So how did this church welcome Paul at first? They looked past his short, bald, fat sickliness and said, you know what? I don't really care about Paul and how he looks and maybe the, the trial that, 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 that he's bringing to us. I'm going to love Paul because he's a man of integrity. He loves us as a pastor. He shared with us the gospel and all those other worldly criteria that we use to judge leaders, I'm not going to use for Paul. I'm going to love him. I'm going to accept him even in the midst of this severe disease because he's a man of God. That's how the church received Paul. They looked past all of that. They accepted him as a spiritual father in the faith, more so because of his message and more so because of his character, not because of his personality and all these things that we look at as humans. But yet Paul is concerned. Because in verse 16, he's not going to pull any punches on them. But look at what he says in verse 16. Have I then become your enemy why? By telling you the truth. You don't want to hear what I have to say. I'm coming and I'm rebuking you. I'm telling you the truth, Galatians. I'm coming as your spiritual father. I'm coming as your pastor. And I'm telling you words you don't want to hear. And now you're treating me as an enemy. At first you received me. At first you welcomed me. At first we had this love. But now because I'm getting in your face and now because I'm confronting false teaching and now because I'm concerned about your spiritual well-being and I'm having to tell you some hard truths, you don't want to receive it. You're not accepting the truth in love. Ephesians 4.15, Paul says this, Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who's the head into Christ. Sometimes pastors have to speak truth, but they do it in love. Why do we as pastors have to speak truth? Paul tells us in 1 Timothy, I'm sorry, in 2 Timothy chapter 4. Paul is writing to Timothy. 2 Timothy 4, 2-4, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure what? Sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Paul says, listen, guys, i got to tell you the truth. And the truth hurts. And the only reason I'm telling you the truth is because I love you. But now, when I tell you the truth, Galatians, you're treating me like an enemy. You don't want to hear it. You're shutting your ears. You're, you want to uh, accumulate people with itching, your itching ears so that, that they'll tell you what you want to hear. Okay, so this is where this sermon gets very vulnerable for me. I was telling Don earlier, I get to stand up and tell the church how they're supposed to treat me and how I'm supposed to treat them. 
Okay, here it goes. So here's some application. How, how, do, we, how do we bring this into application? How does this apply to you as the congregation of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Not just how you receive and welcome me, per se, as the lead pastor, but it also extends to how you receive and welcome Pastor Andrew, our elders, anybody that's in spiritual leadership in this church. How do you relate to them? Do you grade your spiritual leaders based upon worldly criteria? Or do you do it based upon biblical qualifications? Are you quick to criticize because we're not as cutting edge as maybe you'd like us to be. Or we're not as hip or we don't fit the profile or, or maybe we don't fit the type of personality that you're looking for. You, you tend to grade your leaders on personality and giftedness, not on character, not on integrity, not on biblical qualifications. Do you accept the truth from your pastors? You know, the loyalty to the church never rests upon whether or not the pastor tells you what you want to hear. I've been here 13 years. I bet you every single one of you that have been here that long can raise your hand and say, there's been many times where Pastor Sean told me what I didn't want to hear. Probably more so. I'd probably tell you more what you don't want to hear than what you want to hear. And so as a congregation, you've got to be at that point where when thus saith the Lord comes from the word of God, you receive that truth, and you, you understand we do it in love because we love you, but you're quick to accept the truth. Do you only want to have a guy tell you what makes you feel good? Or are you willing to be confronted with Scripture because it hurts? Listen to what the Bible says about the Scripture itself. Hebrews 4, 12-13. For the Word of God is living and active. This right here, this Bible is living and active, it's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to him, uh, to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. You see, as a pastor, when I stand up and I preach the whole counsel of God's word, there are times where I, yeah, I wish I could skip over this part because it's going to make people hurt. But if this word is sharper than a double-edged sword, I've got to be faithful to this word because I love you. Here's the point. If I skip over the truth, it shows I don't love you. If I tell you the truth of what the word says, I really do love you. Parents, you know that. You really love your kids when you tell them the truth. You don't gloss it over. And you tell them the whole truth. The whole counsel of God's word. You don't just pick and choose which parts you want to teach. That's why at Emmanuel we do what's called expository or expositional preaching where we normally take a book of the Bible and we go verse by verse through it so that we don't skip over anything. And we go Old Testament, New Testament all over the place. Paul said in Acts 20, 26 through 27, Therefore I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. I'm not going to shrink back from declaring to you the whole counsel of God, even if it hurts. Are you slow to criticize your leaders, but quick to pray for them that we would be men of integrity? Do you pray for us? Do you feed on the meat of the word and not just the milk? Do you want to be challenged? In other words, here's what I'm saying. Do you, by God's grace, put up with us warts and all? Because here's the issue. If I have not offended you yet, I will. 
If I have not been attentive to your needs, I probably will. If I've been aloof in the past, I probably will again. You are not looking at a guy that has it all together. I'm not the world's greatest preacher. I'm sometimes inattentive to the needs of this congregation. Sometimes I'm clueless. Sometimes I drop the ball. Sometimes we mess up. And that's reality. I'm going to disappoint you if I haven't already. But here's the point. In the midst of all of my failures and all of Andrew's failures and all the elders' failures and all of your failures, do you as a congregation receive us, welcome us, pray for us in spite of all of our weaknesses? Do you encourage us? Because the Bible has some free, pretty strong words to say about how you, how you respond to your leaders. And this is not me telling you what, how you're supposed to respond to me because it's me. I'm just going to let the Scripture speak for itself as what the Scripture says about how a congregation is to respond to its leaders. 1 Thessalonians 5, 12-13. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord, those who lead you, your spiritual leaders. Respect them and those who admonish you. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. So respect them, esteem them in the Lord. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So advantage number one, how did the congregation love Paul. They received him, they welcomed him, they respected him, they, but now they're changing their, their tune, they're not willing to accept the truth and love, but at first they, they showed this love to him. But it's a reciprocal love, it's a two-way street. Second perspective is, okay, in verses 17 through 8 and through 20, how did Paul show love for the Galatians? Okay, how do pastors, how do leaders show love for the congregation? Because it's reciprocal. It goes both ways. We love you. You love us. We love each other. It's a reciprocal one another. How, how does this manifest itself? Well, Paul didn't scold them. I don't think pastors should ever scold their congregations or ever shame their congregations. You see, I think there's a big difference between speaking the truth in love and telling you what you not want to hear and do it in a way that's loving than just scolding you or ministering guilt or shaming you. I don't think a pastor should ever do that. But notice what he does in verse 17. He's going to warn them of the pathology or the manipulation or the ulterior motives of false teachers. Look at verse 17. They, who's they? The Judaizers, the false teachers... They make much of you, but for no good purpose. They want to shut you out. They make much of you. Original word in the original language is zealous. They're zealous for you. They're trying to curry your favor. They're eager to win you over. It's a false flattery. They're smooth talking you Galatians so that your itching ears will hear what they want to say and you'll follow them. They're trying to garner a following. But in reality, what are they doing? They're shutting them out. Notice what he says there. They make much of you. They're flattering you. They're zealous for you. They're buttering you up. But look at verse 18. I mean, at the end of verse 17. They want to shut you out. Shut you out of what? 
They want to shut you out of the freedom you have in Christ. They want to shut you out of the gospel. They want to keep adding circumcision and all these dietary laws. They, they want to shut you out from the freedom that you have in Christ. And so what Paul says is, as a true shepherd of the sheep, I've got to warn you about wolves. How does a pastor love his congregation? He warns the sheep about wolves. There are ravenous wolves all around you, especially on the internet and Christian TV that want your soul. Paul says to the elders in Acts 20, 28 through 30, pay care, he's talking to the elders here, pay careful attention to, all, to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for, pastor, the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Our job, my job as a pastor, Pastor Andrew's job as a pastor, our elders, our job is to protect you from false teaching. How do we do that? By exposing you to the full counsel of God's word. We protect you. But verse 19, you see the heart of Paul. And we're going to spend a lot more time on this next week because it's fascinating what he says. You can't just deal with it in, one, in, in just a short time. Look at verse 19. My little children. He's calling them children. For whom I am in the anguish of childbirth until Christ is formed in you. Notice the tenderness. Little children. Paul equates himself to a mom giving birth. Now, Paul often uses this metaphor in 1 Corinthians 4.15. For though you have countless guides in Christ, you do not have many fathers. For I became your father in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He's their spiritual father, and then he makes this weird metaphor. I'm also your spiritual mother, about to give birth. 1 Thessalonians 2, 7 through 8. We were gentle among you like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves because you become very dear to us. Paul says, my little children, I am in labor pains. I'm like a spiritual midwife seeing Christ be formed in you. Now, it's interesting. I have never seen on any job description for a pastor He's a preacher, he's a teacher, he's a leader, he leads a staff. Spiritual midwife. Spiritual midwife. What's a midwife? The midwife doesn't actually give birth, but the midwife is there to help once the birth happens. Who gives the birth to new believers? God alone in his sovereign grace. I can't cause anybody to be born again. But once that person's born again, the pastor's right there to help walk that person along in the faith. And that's Paul's ultimate desire here. Paul wants to see Christ formed in these people. Now, as a pastor, I can't bring about the birth of anybody, but what I can do is what Paul also tells in, in Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Colossians 1, 28 and 29. Him we proclaim. We proclaim Jesus, warning everyone, teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, 
struggling with all his energy that powerfully works within me. We're going to go into great depth next week as far as what this means because right there Paul says, until Christ is formed in you. What in the world does that mean? Christ being formed in you. I'll give you the quick answer. It's that they would grow into spiritual maturity, but we're going to flesh that out next week as far as what does spiritual maturity look like? What does it mean for Christ to be formed in them? But ultimately, Paul's desire is, I want Christ formed in you. What did the false teachers want? They wanted themselves formed in the Galatians. They wanted to make a name for themselves. It was the cult of personality. And Paul says, listen, I could care less whether you follow me. My ultimate goal is that Christ is formed in you. You follow Christ. You grow to look like Christ. I want Christ to be formed in you. The Pharisees or the Judaizers are saying, listen, it's not about Christ. It's about us. We want you to to be like us. It's not the cult of personality. Paul was leading them to Christ. 1 Peter 5, 1 through 3, Peter says this. So I I exhort the elders among you. As a fellow elder and witness of the sufferings of Christ, as well as a partaker in the glory that's going to be revealed, shepherd the flock of God that's among you, exercising oversight, not under compulsion, but willingly as God would have you, not for shameful gain, but eagerly, not domineering over those in your charge, but being examples to the flock. Paul's like, I'm not going to domineer over you. I'm going to be an example to you, and my ultimate goal is that Christ is formed in you. One of my favorite passages of Scripture on spiritual leadership is from John chapter 3. John chapter 3, John the Baptist is baptizing, and Jesus is baptizing, and they're in the same proximity. And John the Baptist's disciples come to him and say, John, we got a problem here. This Jesus guy over here, he's, he's, he's cutting into our market share. Everybody's going over to him. We're losing business. Everybody's going over to Jesus. And you were the first baptizer, John the Baptist. We're panicking here because everybody's going to Jesus. And what does John the Baptist say in John 3.30? He must increase, but I must decrease. That's what Paul's saying to the Galatians. Listen, I'm going to float behind the wayside here. I I am your spiritual father. I'm like a mother giving birth. But ultimately, it's about the increase of Christ in your life. It's about Christ being formed in your life. You see, as a pastor, I should never build my own personal kingdom where the world revolves around my personality, my agenda, and my preferences. I have, to, I have to pray to the Lord all the time that this church does never, never, comes, never, never becomes about a personality. And so that's why there's two things I say to you all the time. Over the past 13 years, you've heard me say these multiple times. What's the first thing I say often? Who's the senior pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church? Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor. I am not the senior pastor. There's only one senior of this pastor of this church. His name is Jesus. Because Jesus said in Matthew 16, 18, I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Who's building this church? Jesus. Who owns this church? Jesus. Who's the senior pastor of this church? Jesus. I'm just an under-shepherd. And the second thing I tell you to do is what? Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Jesus is the senior pastor, not me. And since he's the senior pastor, we need to all fix our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12, 2, looking to Jesus, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him 
endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, it's, it's somewhat vulnerable for me to stand up here and say, here's how I need to love you, and here's how you need to love me. But I do want to bring some practical application to you because I think it's important for me to share with you practically how can you love your spiritual leaders in practical ways. So let me offer some suggestions about how you can put this into practice. And I'm not just talking about me personally as the lead pastor. I'm talking about Pastor Andrew, our youth pastor. I'm talking about our elders, our deacons, anybody that's in spiritual leadership in your life. How do you show this reciprocal love? Let me give you some suggestions. Here's number one. These, are, these, are, these kind of come from my heart. Would you not only pray for us, but pray with us? I know you're praying for me because a lot of you say that. And I get cards, I'm praying for you. And that's wonderful. I love that you're praying for me. And don't stop. But sometimes it's nice for you to pray with me. To stop what you're doing, call me on the phone and say, Pastor Sean, I just want to pray with you. Or maybe after the service to come up here and say, you know what, I just feel led to pray with you. There's something about the presence of another person praying with them. And I know you pray for me, and I'm not not saying that you're not. I'm just saying sometimes it's good to not just pray for us, but to pray with us. Or just to ask us, is there anything we can be praying about? Second, talk to us about our preaching and teaching. We spend a lot of time in preparation to stand up here and preach, and we don't want it just to end there. So if you've got questions, and a lot of times you do, and you want to discuss it further, don't ever feel like you're bugging me if you text me, if you Facebook message me, if you email me, you call me. That's why I'm your pastor, is to help you grow spiritually. So come and talk to us about our teaching and our preaching. We'd love for you to come and ask us more questions and be a resource throughout the week. And Don't ever think you're bothering me. I, I often hear that come out of a person's mouth. Pastor, I don't mean to bother you, but... Take that out of your vocabulary. You are never, ever bothering me. I'm your shepherd, and I'm here to counsel and love you. You're never bothering me. And so just take some time to to talk to us. Number three, give us updates on how God is growing us through our ministry. You know, I'm not in the growth groups all the time to hear the prayer requests, and I'm not in the small groups to hear how God's working. And so my perception of how God's working in this church is often sometimes like from afar. But it would be great for you just from time to time to come and say, Pastor Sean, here's what God's doing in my life. And it doesn't have to be anything big. It can be something small. But just come and we want to hear how God's how God's using us to help you. And so just make it a point. Maybe you just want to share with us how God is working in your life. And again, you're not bugging us by doing this. We want to hear how God is working. So seek us out. The next one, number four, care for and support our wives. Our wives are oftentimes behind the scenes. They don't like to draw a lot of attention to themselves, but they are crucial to our ministry. And I would say, if you're going lo- to choose between me to love and my wife to love, always choose my wife. Sometimes pastors' wives get neglected in the life of the church because they're not up in front and center. Encourage our wives, love our wives, Julie, Dawn, our elders' wives. And number five, see us not only as your leaders, but also as your friends. I think sometimes in church life, there's this perception 
He's the pastor. He's up on stage. I don't know if I can go talk to him. Please, please see me as a friend. As a matter of fact, call me up and go bowling. I'd love to go bowling with you. Or if you want to go to a movie, invite me to a movie. Assuming it's an appropriate movie. But see us not just as this distant, I'm, your, I'm the pastor, but invite us into your homes. Show us care. We want to be not just your spiritual leaders, but your friends. What I'm trying to tell you is, I'm not trying to be self-promoting here. What I'm simply doing is I want to show you a healthy model from the scriptures of how a church loved its pastor and how the pastor loved his church. And at the end of the book of Hebrews, the writer tells the Hebrew church, the church in the book of Hebrews. He's, he's the elder, he's a leader. He says in Hebrews 13, 18, he says this, pray for us, the leaders. Pray for us, the spiritual leaders. For we are sure that we have a clear conscience desiring to act honorably in all things. So you have an example here of a, of a pastor in an actual sermon in the book of Hebrews saying, pray for us, that we would be men of integrity, that we would act honorably. Paul gives Timothy a charge in 1 Timothy 4.1. It's to pastors. Every pastor confronts this passage of Scripture with fear and trembling. It is the pastor's scariest verse. Keep a close watch on yourself, your life, and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. My two greatest responsibilities as pastors, number one, keep a watch on my life, my doctrine, my integrity, my character, and number two, my theology. Always got to keep those two things in check. But here's the point. I cannot successfully do those two things without prayer, without encouragement, without support, because I am weak, I am sinful, I have temptations. And so how do you help us watch our life and doctrine? You pray for us. You support us. So what I'm asking us to do, church, is to take this passage to heart where we see the importance of the church and its leaders demonstrating a reciprocal, mutual love for one another. And may we do this consistently, passionately, wholeheartedly, and faithfully. Because I'll say this at the end of the day, you need it and I need it. We all need it to the glory of God and to the health of our souls. So let me ask you to bow your heads and let's go into a time of prayer this morning. Father, we come before you this morning and we want just to be faithful to your word. Lord, as a pastor, I want to be faithful to teach your word. I want to preach the whole counsel of your word. I want to speak the truth in love. I want to watch over the flock that you've given me. And I take that I take that mandate seriously. And I know Hebrews says one day I'll have to give an account.
have to give an account of how I cared for the souls of Emmanuel Baptist Church. So Lord, I need your strength. I need your grace. I need your mercy. Father, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the, the love that my family has experienced over the years and Lord, the encouragement and support. And I just pray that we would be a church that has a mutual love, that we respect and love and encourage our leaders and Lord, help me as a pastor to be more in tune and, and more faithful to love this congregation. Lord, I pray for Pastor Andrew as he ministers especially to our youth and to the parents of youth. The Lord, he ministers to all people in our church. And so, Lord, give him and Julie a grace and strength to be able to, to lead well and to serve our youth. Lord, I also pray for our elders and their wives as they lead and teach and protect and Lord, stand with me as, as we are a plurality of elders to, to guide this church. Lord, I'm thankful for them, and I pray a special prayer for them. Lord, I thank you for our deacons, the, the ones that are already in place and the ones that are going to be coming on that we've heard their testimonies, Lord. That, and, and, and Lord, I think about our growth group leaders and, and Lord, just anybody that's in uh, spiritual leadership in this church, that we would be a church that loves and encourages one another, that it's reciprocal, it's mutual, and that we're faithful in doing it, Lord. So we need your grace, we need your power, we need your love. Uh, we need your wisdom to be able to be the church you've called us to be. And so, Lord, give us the grace to do that for your glory and for the good of your people. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.